forgot my beverages. <laughs> I'm Randy. And I'm Claire. And you're listening to Killer Vibes, a true crime podcast. Oh my gosh. Okay, everyone. So we just covered Randy's favorite murder, which turned out to be the Zodiac killings. And now we're going to move on to my favorite murder. Woohoo. I'm ready. Okay. So. Firstly, I just want to point out that this case has been receiving a lot of attention lately due to a new limited series that is coming out called I Am the Night. Tonight. It's coming it's out coming in out like tonight. three hours. We're yes. going to my apartment to watch it later. <laughs> exactly. It is coming out tonight, the night we're recording this episode. Um, but Chris Pine is in it. So BuzzFeed Unsolved revisited this case um, they had already done it, but they just revisited it. And my favorite murder, another our favorite, yeah, our favorite our fa- true crime. My podcast, favorite murder, my favorite podcast. <laughs> basically, it's the greatest. Um, has also talked about it. I just want to say that I've wanted to cover this case since we started our podcast. So I'm just really sorry that we ended up recording it right now and not beforehand. It's just sort of how the timing worked out. Um, But I'm still super excited to talk about it. No, I can attest to the fact. (laughs) So July, June, July. July or June. May even, maybe. I don't know. Um, When we first started talking about podcasts. A while ago when I was like, hey, Claire, wanted to do a crime podcast. (laughs) She was like, yes, my the next sentence was my favorite murders, the Black Dahlia. Like, yeah. I'm not kidding you. So I can attest that she's not just picking this case because it's popular right now. It is her favorite case. Yes. And I've had it been my favorite for a long time. Um, and I made sure to watch the BuzzFeed Unsolved episode and listen to the My Favorite Murder episode on this case so that I don't repeat necessarily everything but I also added in some new information that is not seen or heard in either of those other true crime-based media outlet things. So, <laughs> well, one of them's a video and one's a, one of them's a podcast, so I can't call them all a podcast. So, right. um, so yeah, I just wanted to make sure that all of you guys knew that I'm not going to just be repeating everything that they said. There is some extra information at the end, and it'll be a surprise and I can't wait to see what Randy says about it. I'm really excited. Yay. Can I <laughs> yeah. ask you a question before we start? Absolutely. Okay. On the count of three, we are going to say yes or no to the question, have you looked at the crime scene photos? Okay. <laughs> okay. One, two, three. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's terrible, but I've seen all of them. <laughs> like the gross ones, the ones that aren't gross. I've seen every single picture. Not every single picture, obviously, but most of the really gross pictures from this case. And they're pretty gruesome, friends. They're not nice to look at. We still are talking about a human being here. And I just wanted to reiterate that because I think that this case, for a lot of people, it obviously has a lot of notoriety. And Elizabeth Short, who is the victim in all of this, tends to be erased. Right. And I want to talk about her and I'm going to talk about her life um, and I'm going to talk about you know, who who she was um, in terms of what she did and the actions that led up to her murder. Um, so at the end, we just have to remember that she is a person and we respect her despite the long time span that has existed since she passed away. Um, but yeah, so I just wanted to set the stage and set this somber, melancholy tone. And with that, let's begin. Great. <coughs> oh, <laughs> Whoa. I was going to say, great, I'm sad now. 
let's let's start. Tone has <clears throat> changed. Okay. Okay. So I want to talk about the 1940s in Los Angeles. Okay. Um, according to crime writer Pugh Etwell, um, and I quote, it was the post-war period with increasing freedoms for women, and more and more women were coming in from all around the country to try and make it in Hollywood. So in other words, there was this boom of young women in California, and they were all there to try and make it in showbiz. So the city, especially Los Angeles and Hollywood, was just flooded with people. Like there were tons of subplanted people just moving there just because they wanted to make it big. They wanted to be famous. So this period of time is actually considered the golden age of Hollywood. We see the movie Fantasia from Disney, uh, Miracle on 34th Street, Meet Me in St. Louis, It's a Wonderful Life, my favorite old-timey movie, Casablanca, comes out, and of course, what is considered to be the greatest film of all time, Citizen Kane, is also produced during the 1930s and 1940s um, in California. So, and those are just a few of the films that are produced during this period. There's a whole bunch more. If you're interested in looking them up, you could probably do that. Um, So obviously the appeal was there to move out to California. So it wasn't just that women were like, I want to be famous. It was making money. Like Hollywood was making a ton of money. Um, Actresses were being paid top dollar to act and to perform in these films. So there was a huge incentive to move out there. Okay. On January 15th, 1947, Betty Bersinger was on her way to the shoe repair store with her three-year-old daughter in tow. She was a housewife who was from around Los Angeles. You're so excited. (laughs) And this particular morning, she was slightly on edge. So it's 1947. And like I said before, the Los Angeles area was sort of in this post-war period. And there had been a lot of construction that was happening. The city was being built up pretty heavily, moving into this metropolis. And that had been put completely on halt because of World War II. So most of the industrial plants were dedicated to the production of war materials and tanks, airplanes, um, and they're on a coast. So boats and all that stuff. Um, So the city was now slowly starting to put more effort into rebuilding. And there was just a lot of vacant lots everywhere Mm -hmm. and just derelict buildings that had just been left there. Bare bones. That's a good word. Thank you. It's one of my favorite words. <laughs> Everyone, the word derelict is a great word. Anyway, <laughs> so is melancholy. Melancholy is one of my favorite words. So ultimately, you can tell why this is my favorite case. <gasps> I love that I get word. to use all these really cool words. Melancholy anyway, is a great word. I know, isn't it? I learned it when I read Because of Winn-Dixie when I was a child. Oh, I know. It reminds me of the song, um, the Rose Garden <laughs> song. You know what I'm talking about? Rady's dancing for me. Uh, yes. Love shouldn't be so melancholy. Yes, you I know, know exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Go you on. sang it just like the singer. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Completely accurate. Okay. So for Betty, who's walking to the shoe repair store, her walk would have included several vacant lots and when she was talking Creepy. to police, it like, just made her uneasy. There. Exactly. I mean like, like if you don't want to find <laughs> what she's gonna find like don't, don't walk, walk around thousands of vacant 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 <laughs> <laughs> we should start over i can't say anything correctly no we're not doing that okay so you after, get the point yeah. yeah and i mean after what she found on the corner of norton and 39th avenue i agree i would never go walking outside ever again anywhere honestly <laughs> Become um, a hermit. Yeah, I just like never leave my house and just let 
you know, I just order up all the time. <laughs> That's what I would do. Okay. How would you sustain yourself? Um, I would do yoga in my room. And no, then, for money. Oh, for money, I would. <laughs> not your soul. Right. I'm Sorry. not asking how you sustain that. <laughs> That's all I care about. Um, you know, I would. I don't know. I, I'll have to figure that out. We can do this from out. your room. Yeah, we could do this. I could bring all this to you. Yeah, right? We could take all this equipment that's in the recording studio and just bring it to my house and then just do it. Yeah, anyway. Anyway, so the fact is, is that she found something pretty horrible. So at first, Betty saw something white just lying on the empty corner. Again, Norton and 39th Avenue. She thought it might have been trash or something because people suck and they leave their garbage everywhere. Um, That's not a new concept. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Also, as she got closer, she started to realize that this very pale white object wasn't trash. And Betty, being a semi-rational human, thought it might be a store mannequin, which if we remember the Did you just call her semi-rational? Yeah. (laughs) I assume she's semi-rational. She, see, she's probably okay. fully rational. Probably fully rational. See, I am semi-rational, okay? Because every time I see like a black trash bag, I'm like, there's a dead body dead in there. Body. So I immediately would have thought this was a dead body. <laughs> like it, that just would have happened. Um, so, but if we hearken back to the Peggy Hetrick's case and we see Tim Masters first admitting, he's like, I thought it was, I thought her body had been a store mannequin. Everyone we, thinks that. Everyone thinks that. Except for us who are morbid and gross. Right. But I feel like that's your brain. Like your brain, <laughs> a normal person's brain wouldn't just be like, that's a dead body. Of like you're not. probably going to be like, why in a lot and there's a body shaped thing. That's probably yeah. a mannequin. Yeah. No, I wouldn't think that. But yes, they're a rational human. And we see this all the time. Think that. Yes, of course. But if we're going to take the Peggy Hedrick standard, then I think this lady needs to be charged with the murder. <laughs> oh, yeah, clearly. Because she clearly <laughs> did it because she was walking by it. Same thing goes for any of the Green River killer- killings. I mean, whoever found their bodies clearly were the ones who really all committed the crimes. Anyway, you can tell that we're just slightly bitter yeah. <laughs> about poor Tim Masters. Anyway, um, so... She started walking past it after she had sort of rationalized it in her mind as a mannequin. Something just didn't feel right about that. So she turned around and she saw the sight for what it really was, the bisected body of a young woman. She obviously screamed and ran to the nearest house to call the police. The police officers who arrived on the scene had to immediately call for backup, not just because of the fact that there was a dead body, but solely for the fact of what the crime scene looked like. Um, The Los Angeles Police Department, and I'll be talking about them a lot because they make me mad, um, got to this scene pretty quickly and started to take note of the odd crime scene. The body seemed to have been posed with her hands up above her head, not seemed, it was posed, sorry. (laughs) Um, It was posed with her hands up above her head and her legs spread out. There were rope burns on her wrists and ankles as well as on her neck. This led the police to believe that the victim may have been tortured for several days before she died. There was no blood on the body or on the grass surrounding, so she had obviously been killed somewhere else and then moved to a secondary location where her body was deposited and posed. The body was completely completely, sorry. The body was completely split through her torso. The two halves of her body were separated by like a foot or so, and the police covered up the body just because there were a lot of passerbys um, with a piece of fabric because it was pretty gross. Um, I just want to mention really quick about the positioning of her body 
it was obviously done in a very sexualized manner. So a lot of times you'll hear people talk about this case and they'll say it was just oddly posed. It's not odd. It is purposeful and it is meant to make her look like an object. Um, Her hands are above her head and her legs are spread wide open and she's completely nude. I mean, what else could that possibly look like? Um, So he also and I'm going to call him a he and I'll talk about why I think the killer is a he in a minute. Um, He also separated her face from her sexual organs And that's another huge indicator of how he sexualized her. Mm -hmm. So I don't like it when people just say she was oddly posed. It's not odd. It's very purposeful. That's a fair critique. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm just not going to shy away from the fact that this is what happened to her. So sorry. Not sorry. (laughs) Um, In addition to all of this, a smile had been carved into her face. The edges of her mouth had been cut all the way back to her eel her ears creating this permanent smile. Um, each cut was about three inches uh, deep. The autopsy report did confirm that these two slits had been made while the victim was still alive. There was a tire mark next to the body with a bloody footprint inside of the tire mark and a spot of blood on the curb next to the body. Her body had been displayed very close to the sidewalk too, literally about like six inches away from the sidewalk. So clearly... The killer didn't care if somebody stumbled upon it. And we can also make the assumption that the body had been dumped that night. Mm-hmm. Um, just because, you know, there's, it's like... Someone would have seen it. Yeah. Los Angeles, as I said before, was flooded with people. P- somebody would have walked past this body and it wouldn't have just been sitting out for like two days or whatever. Yeah. And did you mention that it wasn't bloody? Yes, I did. Okay. So, yeah, I didn't remember if you said that. Or yeah, not. yeah, yeah. So, so it does look like a mannequin. Yes, yeah. Just to reiterate that fact, there is no blood anywhere, and her body is severed in two, so there would have been blood. So clearly, the body had been yeah. placed, and there. that makes the crime scene photos not as bad. Just so exactly. you know, we're not disgusting people. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, they're we, pretty terrible. They're gross, but they're not as bad because there's not yeah. blood everywhere. Like no. her guts aren't falling out of her. No, no, no. This was very strategical and. We'll talk about that later, too. Um, Mm -hmm. We know who did it. (laughs) Yes. So the posed limbs and the washed body also showcase that the killer wanted the body to be found almost immediately. Um, So they weren't. This also showcases that the killer was not afraid to be caught like this. This person is like just fully splayed out. And they are the killer is obviously unafraid that that body will lead to them. So it doesn't really matter if her body is found. Well, he wants it to be found or he would have not put it there. Right. Exactly. (laughs) It's narcissistic killers, friends. So the LAPD made this case a big deal due to the gruesome nature of the crime and quickly assigned two investigators to the case. They suck, but it's okay. Detective Sergeant Harry Hansen and Detective Finnis Brown. Um, Detective Brown would be more involved with the case than Detective Hansen, um, but they were both kind of assigned to it. They got to the scene, and obviously it was crawling with reporters and photographers. They, you know, gained control of everything. Unfortunately, a lot of people had been walking around on the ground that surrounded the body. Um, we also get the famous crime scene photo- like photographs because of all of the reporters that were crawling around. We've talked about that with the Hall and Mills murders as well, just people being a little too eccentric when it comes to taking pictures of a crime scene. 
Again, as Randy mentioned, if you are a journalist, of course you're going to snap that picture. It's like almost, you almost have to. Yeah, if you don't, like, what are you, why are you a journalist? Right. And <laughs> what are you like, doing? <laughs> some of the most controversial images that we see um, in the history of media have come from journalists just saying, screw it, I'm taking the picture. Well, as a journalist, it's like, take the photo, get the quote, grab the information, apologize later. Exactly. And like, Maybe think about it before you publish it, but like when you're there, it's like get everything. Yeah. And, and then later digest it all. Right. Exactly. And I'm sure everyone, or not everyone, but the majority of people have seen the famous picture of Bobby Kennedy's assassination. And the photographer famously like was shooed off by another woman. She was trying to block him to take the picture. And she was like, Do you have no decency? And he said, Get out of my way. This is history. Exactly. So like, is- how are we going to remember all of this if we don't? Exactly. And it has become an iconic photograph. And the same thing with the Dahlia stuff. Like a lot of her pictures, even her mug shots. The are, particular, the one of her, yeah. of her face is like, infamous. is always like right beside her beautiful, like non-murdered face. Yeah, and exactly. So it adds urgency. It, it adds urgency. And it adds, like, that's why we're still talking about it today. It's an incredibly awful crime scene. Mm-hmm. And not that that makes it any worse than any other case, but I mean, that's terrifying to wake up in Los Angeles and in your backyard, essentially, Mm -hmm. not literally, is like a dismembered woman. Yes. And like the circumstances surrounding it, too, that you'll learn later are just like, what the heck? So Exactly. So we're almost thankful that all of these people were there. So just so that we don't make the journalists look like animals and they're all over the place. But they were kind of all over the place. And there is a limit. Like, you shouldn't walk all over the crime scene. Well, today they wouldn't have of got course that not. close of to it. But. Yeah. We have quick response times now um, and it's a little bit different nowadays. But anyway, so the two detectives worked very quickly. They removed the body and transported it back to the morgue where they immediately took fingerprints. The victim proved to be 22-year-old Elizabeth Short from Santa Barbara and her fingerprints were found in the system and we'll talk a little bit about that too. So now we're going to dive into Elizabeth's life. Um, She was born in Massachusetts, really close to Boston, which is just the most ironic because we We just went to Boston. Boston. Yes, Randy and I went on a friendship trip. And it was so much fun. So much fun. Um, Unfortunately, we didn't solve the Lady of the Dunes case. I know we said we would. That was a big bummer. I'm so sorry. Yeah, sorry. We say things we don't mean all the time. (laughs) All the time. That was sarcasm, Don't believe anything we tell you. (laughs) No, do. We're telling (laughs) you. But, like, not that. Um, Okay. So, she was born to Phoebe and Cleo Short. Her father's name is Cleo, which I think is very interesting. And another interesting thing is he faked his own death. So at the beginning of the Great Depression, I love a fake death. I know, so crafty and awful. That person is like the most interesting person. The person who goes through <laughs> with faking their death. Oh yeah. Like I want to go hang out with them. No, but he's a jerk. So we're not going to hang out with Cleo Short. I would. Okay. <laughs> just you kidding. can do that. You can do that. <laughs> Tell me more about him. Maybe okay. I'll change my mind. Right. So it's the beginning of the Great Depression. We have Black Tuesday in 1929. A lot of people lost their jobs, jumped off of buildings. It was a pretty terrible, terrible day. Um, So Cleo decides to fake his own death by parking his car by a bridge and literally disappearing. So people thought he had jumped into the river. (laughs) See, now I want to have coffee with him. (laughs) And I'm like, tell me about that plan. Like, what did you? Yeah. So this left Phoebe short to raise Elizabeth and her four sisters alone. So five girls, 
one house, one source of income. And this source of income was a female, mm-hmm. which In sucked. the 40s. Yeah, so that's the worst. Um, so Cleo would eventually reach out to Phoebe years later, saying he was alive and living in California, mm-hmm. which I can only imagine what that would have been like for Phoebe Short. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> Excuse me. Excuse you're, you what? owe me a lot of money for all of the hard work I did. And <laughs> like, what the hell? Just abandon me. What? I would just be really pissed. Go buy me a house. Yeah, right? Exactly. She deserves that. She deserves a house. She deserves a house. She deserves Full a lot for all of the stuff everything she, she loves. Exactly. So obviously, Phoebe did not take up Cleo on his offer to move the family out there, which is what he had offered in his letter. Yeah, um, I would be like, n- yeah, not don't want anything, anything to do with you, no you weirdo. Exactly. But Cleo did offer to let Elizabeth move mm-hmm. out to his house in, guess where? It's in California. I know where. I, <laughs> it's like not in my <laughs> mind right now. It is a connection to the Zodiac. In San Francisco. No. Where? Vallejo. Oh, you! I knew that. <laughs> See, I knew that because you just told me that two days ago. Yes. <laughs> so this is the first like incident of connection between Randy and I's favorite cases. Oh my god, there's this so will, many there more. There will be more. It's so weird because we didn't weird. plan that. No, we didn't even talk about the similarities until until we did Zodiac. Until we did Zodiac, and then and I we was were like, like what? "Wait, now wait a minute! What, what is all of this?" <laughs> I know, right? It was insane. So, um. Cleo offers this to Elizabeth, and she moves out to Vallejo, California in 1943. So, because Cleo is an asshole and uh, (laughs) can't commit to anything, he actually kicks Elizabeth out of his house around, like, March of Mm -hmm. 1943. So, she is not there for very long. Um, And she ends up living with some friends. So, the reason that the FBI had her fingerprints on file is because one night she was out with some friends in September of 1943, and the party got a little too crazy. They were at a restaurant, and the owners were a little overwhelmed by the amount of noise and just, like, overwhelming teenagers, just gross, um, in in their restaurant. So, they called the police. Elizabeth was 18, so she was drinking underage, so they had to book her. And the police actually ended up sending her all the way home to Massachusetts. So, I, which is weird for me. Like, I don't know if that's a thing that they do. But she's 18 years old, so she technically is an adult. But they sent her all the way home. And she ends up back in California in 1946. Um, but we're going to close out the episode. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, with her being sent back to Massachusetts. And we'll talk a little bit more about her time there and then why she goes back to California um, in uh, three years later in 1946. So um, thank you guys so much for listening the, to the beginning of this. Um, I hope you learned something new already about the Black Dahlia murder. But yeah. 